Okay, I'm obsessed with Audible because it lets you enjoy all of your audio entertainment in one app. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. And with female writers and heroines, celebrity narration, multicast productions, Audible has you covered for every type of excitement that you're looking for, including true crime and mystery. And I know all of you love that too. For example, right now, I'm listening to None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash reality life or text reality life to 500 500. That's audible.com slash reality life or text reality life to 500 500. With DoorDash, there's something for everyone. You need a birthday gift? Check. Need to stock up on meals, sides, and drinks that your family loves? Also check. Pet ran out of food again? They've got it. Wellness essentials need a restock? It's a good thing they've got those too. The DoorDash app allows you to customize, substitute, schedule, and track your orders, as well as communicate with your shopper while receiving real-time updates. This has been a huge game changer for myself and for our family. Millions of people trust DoorDash for groceries, pet supplies, gifts, well-being, and more, and you should too. Shop with DoorDash and enjoy big savings. Use code KATECASEY to get 50% off, up to $10 value on $15 minimum subtotal on your next convenience, grocery or retail order. For eligible users only, terms apply. The Amazing Kate Casey. Welcome back to another episode of Reality Life with Kate Casey. In this episode, I cover two murder cases. The first is the story of Samantha Josephson. Her story is one of the six featured in the Hulu docuseries, Death in the Dorms. I highly recommend it. In one of those episodes is also the story of Yardley Love, which I've also covered a few episodes ago. Yardley was a standout academic and athlete at the University of Virginia. She was on the lacrosse team, and she was murdered by her ex-boyfriend, who was also a UVA lacrosse player. You can go back and listen to that a few episodes ago. Samantha was a 21-year-old senior at the University of South Carolina. On March 29th, 2019, she was kidnapped and murdered when she was targeted by a person posing as a rideshare driver. That March early morning, she went out with friends and ordered an Uber. At 2.09 a.m., surveillance footage captured a black Chevrolet Impala pulling up beside her. She was pictured wearing an orange shirt and black pants as she got into the vehicle and it drove away. Not long afterwards, the Uber that Samantha had called arrived, and when the driver found out she was not there, they canceled the journey. Samantha had mistakenly climbed into the wrong car. He had activated the child lock so that the doors could only be opened from the outside, thereby trapping her inside the vehicle. The next day, her roommates worried when they realized she hadn't returned home, so they reported her missing. The murderer was arrested the next day and charged with kidnapping and murdering Samantha. A jury ultimately found him guilty of her kidnapping and murder and sentenced to life in prison. The killing attracted national attention and led to a discussion, an important discussion, about the dangers of ride-sharing and the importance of ensuring that a ride-share car is being driven by a registered driver prior to entering. The murder led to the passage of Sammy's Law in New Jersey, which enhances protections for drivers and passengers using rideshare services. Legislation at the federal level is pending. After their daughter Samantha's death, her parents established What's My Name Foundation. The foundation works to educate people about ridesharing safety, along with supporting charitable foundations and awarding scholarships. And her father, Seymour Josephson, joins me in this episode. But first... Retired FBI agent Jody Weber joins me to again discuss the ongoing details of the Idaho murder case. You can go back and listen to all three previous episodes when you go back to all of my previous episodes. Jody is a retired special agent with the FBI. During her 22-year career, she worked on the Centennial Olympic bombing case and was part of the Fugitive Task Force tracking serial bomber Eric Robert Rudolph. She's worked numerous high-profile international terrorism and complex financial crime investigations and was a 9-11 responder who worked the crime scene at the Pentagon for 16 days. Prior to joining the FBI in 1997, she was the morning anchor and investigative reporter at an NBC affiliate in Wisconsin. If you're unfamiliar with the Idaho case, on November 13th of 2022, Ethan Chapin, 
Madison Mogan, Zana Kernodal, and Kaylee Gonzalez, four students at the University of Idaho were found dead at a home near the campus in Moscow, Idaho. The killings occurred on a typical Saturday night after two of the victims had been at a bar together and two others had been at a party. Authorities went weeks without identifying a suspect, pleading with the public for tips and videos that could help them piece together what had led to this crime. On November 30th of 2022, the police arrested Brian Koberger, a 28-year-old criminology student at Washington State University, and charged him with the murder. So here is my interview with Jody Weber and Seymour Josephson. Welcome back. Thanks, Kate. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about the Idaho case. Every day there seems to be more information that comes out, either uh, leaks that we find in news reports, but also in all of these Facebook groups that I know that you and I are in. Um, there's more information that comes up, and there are a couple things I wanted to talk to you about. The first are the tool markings. What can we learn from the autopsy? That's a very good question. One of the things that um, has come up is, you know, was the knife that was used a K-bar knife just because there was a K-bar sheath found at the crime scene? And you and I discussed last week, well, just because it was a K-bar knife sheath doesn't mean it was necessarily a K-bar knife in that sheath that was utilized to commit these homicides. And so one of the things that will be interesting to see in the autopsy reports is if the forensic examiners, um, the forensic pathologist, if they x-rayed the body to get markings on the bones, and if any bones were actually extracted from the victims, so that... um, Either if a knife is found, the tool marking experts can compare a weapon to the markings on those bones, or let's say the murder weapon is not recovered, what investigators could do is they could go to the the K-Bar manufacturer and ask for um, sample knives that they believe would be consistent with this sheath and then get those and use those on cadaver bones to see what kind of markings they would leave and then compare those markings to any markings that are evident in the autopsy report either via x-ray and or extracted bones and see if they're similar or different and that could help either include or exclude a K-bar knife. The cost of these investigations, can you put into context, I mean, we know that there are so many people that are working behind the scenes, but utilizing all the resources that they are using in this case, what could you imagine that the price will be for this? Oh, it's astronomical. First of all, you've got the overtime just for all the officers and detectives and state police that are on this. Um, FBI agents, we kind of have a built-in overtime system built into our salary scale. So it's not like we, um, you know, we work around the clock 24-7 anyways. You're never really off call when you're an FBI agent. But just the the salary alone and the overtime, then you've got all the costs associated with DNA processing. You've got all the, um, the, the um, expenses that are incurred with, you know, subpoenaing records, sending out subpoenas, a lot of companies charge for that if they produce records for you, especially the banks, which is kind of frustrating because law enforcement does a lot to fight um, crime at banks, fraud against banks, and um, but we get charged for that. Um, certainly, there's a, a lot of um, resources that are needed, equipment that's needed, Um, in order to all the forensic processing, all the chemicals that were needed to process that scene, everything that needs to be transported from one place to another. And certainly if the trial gets moved, if there's a change of venue, um, you've got to move your case all the way down to, let's say it gets moved to Boise, you've got to move your case. So there are quite a bit 
of um, expenses that are incurred with an investigation this size. What do you think will happen for his defense team? How many people do you think will be part of his team and what kind of resources will be made available to them? Well, we already know that Ann Taylor has had in um, a crime scene reconstructionist come into the crime scene. And so she's utilizing that state government money that is set aside for public defenders. And I mean, she's going to put on a defense. Um, You know, I don't think anyone should underestimate her. It's possible because of the voluminous amount of discovery that will be turned over to the defense, Um, all the DNA, all the the forensics, all the digital forensics, all the cell phone records and triangulations, um, all the GPS data from either the car or the cell phones, um, all of that, she's only one person and there's only 24 hours in a day. She's going to need some additional public defenders to help her. So that will be additional state expenses towards his, his defense. Can he utilize a rural cabin and utilize police cam videos available to PhD students to do a stalking? So, okay, your first part of your question about remote cabins. And I'm going to say that is a possibility that law enforcement should look into. Um, I know in my experience, when I was on the Southeast Bomb Task Force and Eric Robert Rudolph was our bomber in connection with the Centennial Olympic Park bombing and three subsequent bombings, he became a fugitive and took off in North Carolina in the Nantahala Forest in the mountains there. And um, one of the things that we found working that case and trying to track him is we would have these cabin break-ins. And, you know, there's a lot of people who have cabins as second homes. They're not there all year round. And so there are months at a time where cabins can be unoccupied. People go south. People live in a suburban town like Boise. They don't come north you know, except for, you know, during the summer months when you can be outside, the weather's warm. And so what I found on the Eric Robert Rudolph case is that he was breaking into cabins and we would find that um, the cabinets would be ransacked so that, you know, cans of soup were missing, spices were missing, ace bandages was missing, hydrogen peroxide, things a fugitive would need. If If it was a regular burglar, you would anticipate television sets would have been taken or stereo equipment, you know, electronics, things of higher value, perhaps weapons. You don't steal the cinnamon and the salt and pepper. You know what I'm saying? So he utilized cabins in, in that regard. And so I wonder if it's possible. I do think it's possible that that is something that law enforcement should be aware of that, hey, if they get any indication from any of these people who own cabins in that southern loop where the circuitous route went, Mm -hmm. um, where they say, hey, you know, it appears somebody was in my cabin. I've got a broken window or a forced entry here. And I don't really see anything missing, except it looks like they used the bathroom, like they showered, or I've got footprints in here and it's a van shoe or anything like that. I do think that's something they should look at. Let's talk about Brian's personality. In social media posts from the last 10 years that I know that you've looked through as well, he describes an array of mental health challenges, including anxiety, depression, depersonalization, lack of emotion, and constant thought of suicide. What can we learn from these posts about his criminal mind? So when you look at the chats and the posts that he did on this Tapa Talk forum. Um, And this would have been when he's approximately 16, 17 years old. So he's a teenager. It appears to me he was in a very, very dark place during that time. Um, He mentions quite a bit about being depressed, having anxiety. Um, He mentions that he feels blank that he could do whatever I want and have no remorse or little remorse for it. 
He says he's terrible to his father, the way he treats his father. Um, and what's interesting is that on this forum, I mean, there's, there's just dozens and dozens and dozens of pages of this chat. So he does communicate and feel comfortable communicating on a website, much more so than has been described of him in person. So it appears he can at least engage when he's on one of these chat room forums. But one of the things that's interesting is that he talks about having this visual snow syndrome, the vision where it becomes snowy and hazy and cloudy, and it's just really upsetting his life. And he blames it on on this forum in some of his commentary. He blames it on toxins and that all these toxins are causing this visual snow. And I take all these tests and they can't find anything wrong with me, but it's got to be toxins causing this. And so because I have this visual snow syndrome, as a result, I have depression, I have anxiety, I have no empathy, I have no remorse about anything. Well, one of the forensic psychologists who did a deep dive into this topic talk um, and found Brian Koberger on there or, or all these chats related to him is this Dr. John Matthias. One of the things he said is, well, you know, Brian says, I have these toxins. And so the toxins gave me visual snow. And so as a result of having this visual snow syndrome, I now have depression, anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. And the way Dr. Matthias explains it is he he suspects it's the other way around, where he thinks Brian has trauma from the bullying in childhood. He's got depression. He's got anxiety. Um, and that, that, because it's so extreme and he, he just can't like accept that he's got that and he, he's not accepting he's got these emotional issues that has created psychosomatic sim- symptoms of visual snow. So it's kind of like the reverse, what came first, the chicken or the egg. He's saying that he suspects the emotional problems came first and Brian developed the visual snow as kind of the body's way of reacting to all this emotional discontent that he has. Now, he did caveat what he said on his podcast as saying, well, this is what I suspect. I don't know for sure because I haven't seen his medical records, nor have I, I would need to sit down with Brian on several occasions and talk with him and really conduct a a forensic interview with him, an assessment. But I thought that was was highly interesting, um, what his viewpoint of this whole visual snow syndrome was. And of course, one of the things Brian says on this forum is that he's got to get rid of these toxins. And the best way to get rid of these toxins is to do the vegan diet. So I kind of think that's the impetus or what made him go the vegan route. Now, certainly... When he is talking about a lack of empathy, that's highly concerning. Um, People with narcissistic personality disorder typically display lack of empathy. Psychopaths display lack of empathy. If you look at the alleged behavior of Brian by the girl who was a classmate of his in high school and early college, where she says, you know, he asked me to pick him up and give him a ride. And I didn't know he had drugs in the car. And, you know, he's only thinking about himself, trying to score drugs. And instead, you know, here I could have been arrested for, access, you know, being an accessory, using my vehicle to take him on a drug run. And I had no idea. Well, that's very manipulative behavior. That's having no empathy for her and any consequences she might encounter if, you know, had they gotten pulled over or busted during this drug deal um, and that he was in possession of, of heroin or, or whatever drugs he was um, getting. So that's an example right there of, you know, no empathy, manipulation. We also hear from these students who say, you know, he just would not stop talking in class. It was like he would raise his hand and answer a question 
and you would just slump in your seat because you you're, you just knew like the rest of the class was going to be grandiose Brian just going on his stream of thought and and being you know the smartest person in the room. Well, in a way, that's that's demonstrating manipulative behavior. Um, and so when you have, based on my training and experience, when you've got lack of empathy, lack of remorse, narcissism, manipulative behavior, passive aggression, grandiose behavior, and then you combine it with antisocial behavior or even potentially borderline personality disorder, you've got all the characteristics that fall under the psychopathic behavior umbrella. And I wanted to circle back, Kate, because I didn't answer part two of your question before about the body cams and is he analyzing the body cam videos for stalking? Um, That was one thing that one of your listeners reached out to me about. And to me, I thought that was a very credible suggestion because certainly criminology students at any level, you know, you can be an undergraduate studying criminology Um, You can be an FBI agent and they use body cam videos to train us. Um, It's very, very relevant because you learn from mistakes that happen in real time. So if he, through the university, had access to different body cam videos from, you know, the Moscow Police Department or WSU, you know, Zana had a sister at WSU. If, you know, he saw these body cam videos and any of these victims were on it, it's very possible that could be where an attraction was formed or, um, you know, a fixation was formed. I think it's going to be interesting to see if he's got kind of an anti-female complex against women. I notice, and this may seem very minor to some people in the big scheme of, you know, everything in this case. Um, but I noticed when he was in court, when the female judge asked him questions, he would respond, yes, no, not yes, your honor. No, your mm, honor. Yeah. And to me and my experience, um, that's a tactic. And I've seen it used by defense attorneys when I've been on the stand, where when they, when they cross-examine me, they refer to me as Miss Weber, but all the male FBI agents are Special Agent Jones mm-hmm. or Special Agent Johnson. So the way, and what they're trying to do is they're trying to fluster you. That shows they don't respect you. I mean, it's misogynistic tactic. It really is. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, I have the same title as the other male special agents, because we went through the identical training. You know, Mm -hmm. we have equal um, bona fides to be special agents. So when that happens, when I'm on the stand and I know a defense attorney is doing that to try to get me to react, I'll turn to the jury and not respond to the defense attorney when I answer the question. I'll turn and look at the jury And I will say, well, in my experience as a special agent, and then you see the jury, both men and women nod because they jurors pick up on this. They notice lack of respect like that. And what I've noticed is that male jurors are offended by it just as much as female jurors are. There are many men out there that are not misogynistic and that they have mothers and wives and girlfriends and daughters who are accomplished and they don't like it. So think it's going to be interesting to see. Um, I do think this case will eventually make it to district court after the preliminary hearing. And if he gets a male judge, I think it'll be interesting to see if he addresses that judge as your honor. I know everybody right now is on a health kick, and that's why I want to tell you about Roe Body Program. Roe provides access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market. The Roe Body Program pairs a weekly shot with healthy lifestyle changes, so you can lose 15 to 20% of your weight in a year on average and actually keep it off. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Roe to help them lose weight. It could be you too. Roe Body Program members have support throughout the process. Roe's partner handles all of the insurance paperwork to help get medication covered. If eligible for medication, patients have access to the provider on demand for any questions. And you can sign up online from the comfort of your own home. And this means no scheduling a doctor's appointment, no commute to the doctor's office, and no waiting rooms. 
Average weight loss is 15 to 20% in one year with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to row.com slash KKC. Sign up today and you're going to pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash KKC. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time for you to get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's gas, groceries, or dinner with friends, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit, Discover Bank, member FDIC. Okay, you and I both noticed that there were posts in online forums that seemed to be from possibly a sibling identifying, or not specifically identifying, but alluding to someone else being involved. What can you tell us about that? So there is one that is making the rounds that allegedly is from his sister, one of his sisters. Not sure which one. It could be a troll, but it's really getting generating a lot of buzz. And so what I thought is, um, let's just break it down, what is said in this posting and I can tell you all the problems I see in it because I see quite a few. Okay. So the posting begins. It says, I'm posting anonymously because Brian is my family. Um, well, right there, you're admitting, you're admitting a bias right there. I'm posting anonymous, anonymously, but you're really not anonymous because his mm-hmm. family is only so many people. And then later in the post, she mentions my dad. Well, he's got two sisters. So that narrows it down to two people. Um, it says, you people in this group act like vultures and rabid raccoons. Well, now that is somewhat true. That there are conversations on these chat rooms where, I mean, they have falsely accused Jack DeCour. They've falsely accused the hoodie guy at the food truck. So there is some of that going on, but then there's also very relevant conversations going on on these chat rooms. So you can't just brush with a broad paintbrush stroke. The post goes on to say, Brian is innocent and you will see he has been framed by his drug partner friend, the security guard from the university. They were doing drugs together in the parking lot as they had done numerous times But when security guards started acting like a peeping Tom outside the girl's window, Brian left security guard and drove back to his apartment. Well, there's numerous problems here. Problem number one, he's putting, she's putting her brother at the crime scene. You don't want to do that if he's truly innocent. Um, Problem number two, she's saying he's using drugs. Well, his DNA was taken upon arrest. So they're going to test that and see if he does have cocaine or any other drugs in his system. Number three, she says he drove back to his apartment. No, he didn't drive back to his apartment. We know he didn't drive back to his apartment. He drove for an hour and 10 minutes on that circuitous route. We've got the vehicle tracked and we've got his cell phone tracked. So he didn't just go back to his apartment. She then says, the reason the phone was off is because the battery was flat and security guard was using the car charger. Brian put his phone on charge when he left the parking lot and he switched it back on when he was near his apartment because that's how long it took to get a charge going. Mm -hmm. Well, we know that's false because that phone pinged towers near Blaine and Genesee and Uniontown during that circuitous rep. And then she says Brian's knife was in the car. Well, that's not smart. She's admitting Brian has a knife. knife. Yeah. So if I'm law enforcement, uh, I'd get a subpoena for this post and find out the identity. And if it is one of his sisters, I'd be like, tell me about this knife he's got. What kind of knife is it? When did he get it? Where is that knife? You know, especially if they didn't find a knife during any of their subsequent search warrants. The post then goes on to say Brian's knife was in the car and the security guard was holding it because he used it to chop the cocaine lines. Mm. 
Yes, I said cocaine because Brian stopped heroin years back and substituted the drug with cocaine. He has tried to stop everything, but he's an addict and he has bad migraines. So the cocaine actually helps him. Now, back on that Tapa Talk forum, Brian did admit during all these this dark period in his teenage years that he was experiencing migraines. So, you know, maybe that gives a little bona fides that this may be his sister. The post goes on to say he had no idea a security guard was going to do what he did, payback mentality that he retaliates. Um, I also think if let's allegedly say Brian did leave this individual in the area, is he visible in foot traffic on any of the videos that are that have been obtained by law enforcement in the neighborhood? Um, I think there's a lot that can be done to show there really wasn't anybody else in that parking lot with him. Um, and then it says, Brian actually feels terrible that he left this maniac behind, but it's not his fault. Well, he's an accessory if he drove him there. He's an accessory. Mm. So... Quite an interesting post. Um, Now, it could be the sister. It could be a troll. It could be anything. But I do think there's some some things in there that, you know, um, clearly, if let's just say it is the sister. And this is the story the family is being fed by Brian. It's going to fall apart. The prosecution is going to tear that apart because he didn't just drive home and charge his phone. We've got that car on numerous videos, and we've got that cell phone pinging for an hour and 10 minutes. So it completely wipes out any sort of alibi that he went home and some other guy that he's pointing a finger at did the crime. And it's a pattern with him. He's always blaming somebody else. There's always someone else to blame. Well, and that is something I wanted to point out to you, um, Kate, Let's talk about um, the Papa Rogers post to begin with. On November 30th, Papa Rogers says, I believe the killer, parentheses, with an S after it. So killer or killers. I believe the killers came from the high side of the house. So he's saying the possibility of there were multiple people. Then again, on November 13th, same thing. Did the killer or killers drive or walk to and from the scene? Again, suggesting multiple people. December 1st, this is on the high side of the house. They found evidence here. It is likely blood dripping from the killer or killers. So multiple suggestions of there's more than one person. Then you have Brian planting the seed, allegedly after he was arrested, making the comment, Have you arrested anyone else? You have him. um, Well, you have, what you have is a call into a podcast, the allegedly with T-Rev podcast, where a caller calls in and he says, um, you know, all these Sigma Chi guys, all these fraternity guys, like they keep asking me, like, how would you kill someone? How would you how would you do it? And the podcast host becomes very suspicious. He's like, really? People come up to you and ask you how you would kill someone? I mean, he clearly thought this was odd. Well, then, as it turns out, this one classmate of Brian's, who has been on a number of the news um, reports and programming, says that was Brian's voice. I recognize Brian's voice on that podcast. That is him calling in and alleging it's all these fraternity guys doing this. Well, I remembered that. So I went and listened to that podcast. And then Friday night, I watched 2020. And they had a segment in this 2020 where they interview a hairstylist. And she says, you know, it's creepy because I'm the one that cut Brian's hair. I actually physically touched this guy and they play a recording of Brian calling in and says, hi, my name is Brian. Would you be able to get me in for a haircut? Well, when I heard that, I sat up straight in my chair. I'm like, that's his voice. It's identical wow. mm-hmm. to the podcast. So you've got him on the podcast, allegedly. And this is one thing law enforcement will be able to compare. Um, the, vo- the audio experts will be able to compare 
his voice on the podcast, check his phone records, then check the, the, the voice on the call to the hair salon and match it up to see, was he on that podcast trying to deflect blame onto the fraternity guys? If you look at the 4chan forums, the poster on 4chan also accuses two of the Sigma Chi fraternity brothers of doing this um, in a tag team fashion where one of them was jacked up on steroids and went in and was the killer. And then the other fraternity brother stood guard and kept watch kind of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. You see multiple, multiple patterns here where he's pointing at a security guard or a drug dealer or fraternity guys. Here's the thing. All law enforcement has to do is prove one of these is Brian and any defense at trial where he's saying, oh, it's another guy, the prosecution's going to be able to say, yeah, Brian, you've tried that before. And that house of cards has collapsed. You're constantly trying to blame other people here. You thought it was fraternity guys. Now you're claiming, well, there was, you know, I can, I can envision the, the defense being, well, you know, these, these victims had drugs in their system. So it has to be a drug dealer. You know, it's always going to be somebody else, not Brian. That's, that's going to be their strategy. Well, even if some of these victims had, let's say, some THC in their system, or even potentially, you know, ecstasy, Molly, um, even Coke, you know, just because they have that in them, allegedly or hypothetically, that doesn't mean this was done, done by a drug dealer. We don't, I mean, show me DNA from a drug dealer at the scene. I don't have it. Show me a, pa- a circuitous pattern of a drug dealer's vehicle and his phone right in that window of the murder. You know, that's where the pointing the fingers at somebody else falls apart. So we asked Emily D. Baker, legal expert Emily D. Baker, two questions and she sent us answers. The first question was, can the prosecution still get an indictment even though a preliminary hearing is six months out? She said, there's nothing I see that would legally prevent the prosecution from asking to convene a grand jury and indict the defendant. However, as a practical matter, the prosecution didn't object to the preliminary hearings being set out. If they attempted to sidestep the defense by going to indictment, it would be viewed very negatively by the court and defense. It seems that the state courts in Idaho don't regularly use grand juries. And the second question was, can they still go JG route? And if there are time restraints, like can't be within so many days of preliminary. She said, I think as a practical matter, it would be very difficult now that the preliminary hearing is set. To establish probable cause, you can either go to preliminary hearing or a grand jury. So if they did a grand jury, it would be secret. The defendant would not be entitled to be there and it would be an unprecedented move. I agree with her. Um, I mean, that was my question. Is it possible they could do this? Um, could the prosecution still go to a grand, grand jury? And based on her answer, yes, but it'd be looked very poorly, looked upon very poorly by the court. Because once they had that hearing last week, if the prosecution was intending to go to grand jury, they could have stated so at that time. Um, now, They've got a preliminary, I mean, the court is booked time. They've set aside five days for this preliminary hearing in June. Um, judges don't like to be played, you know. So, you know, I think it would be poor form. And she is correct. Grand juries are secret. So the defense wouldn't need to, wouldn't be allowed to be there. So um, I think based on all of that, even though it could be possible, they could do it. I don't think they will just because it looks like, Core form. I also have a, um, a lot of people asking me. You know, there's this this weird comment on um, page 15 of the affidavit about the cell phone pings, and it says investigators found that the 8458 phone did connect to a cell phone tower that provides service to Moscow on November 14th, 2022. So that would be that Monday. But investigators do not believe the 8458 phone was in Moscow on that date. And so um, that confused people because they're like, well, if you say it pinged a Moscow tower, but you don't believe the phone was in Moscow, 
How is any of the other phone pings credible? You know, is this something the defense is going to jump on? And certainly they are going to jump on it. But the fact that law enforcement put this in the affidavit, they're getting ahead of it. They're being proactive. And what I anticipate is they're going to put the cellular phone experts from the FBI on the stand, and they're going to explain, look, Holman and Moscow are approximately, what, 10 miles apart, Mm -hmm. okay? You take the westernmost tower in Moscow, closest to the Idaho-Washington line, and then you take the easternmost tower in Pullman, Washington, and halfway between the Pullman Tower and that westernmost Moscow Tower, halfway between, if you are directly halfway between, you may ping Pullman or you may pull ping Moscow. You're halfway in between. So you've got about a five-mile expanse between the easternmost Washington Tower and the westernmost Idaho Tower. So if he is in the middle there, like right along the state line, so kind of right in between, his cell phone could technically ping Moscow, but he's still right on the line. He's not actually in Moscow yet. He's still in Washington. So I think what they're doing is being proactive by putting that in the affidavit and then um, being able to track him through GPS data. I also think, um, Kate, that one of the things that um, people are asking about too is more on that footprint because apparently um, there was a large party at the house either a night or two before the murders that had allegedly 150 people in the house. So, you know, one of the things the defense might jump on is, well, how many college kids wear van shoes? Half of them probably, tons of kids wear van shoes. You have all these people in the house. Well, I think it's important to to point out that in the affidavit, this isn't just a regular footprint that you see on the floor. It's latent, meaning you can't see it with your eye. They found it through the use of a presumptive blood test. And and that's fancy words for luminol. That's that chemical that lights up blood, okay? And it turns it like a fluorescent blue kind of color. Mm -hmm. So they know it's a bloody footprint. So number one, um, you know, they can ask these kids who are at the party, anybody bleeding in in mass that could have left a bloody footprint? And of course, these kids are all going to say, no, nobody was bleeding at this party. This obviously occurred on the night of the murders. So they've got the bloody footprint that they found through the luminol. Then they add amido black okay, which is a chemical and it reacts with the proteins in the blood. And what that does is color it and that it makes it black so that they can see the shoe tread of that shoe. So that's how they're going to get around this whole party held at the house a night or two before and keep the footprint as valuable evidence. Um, A few other things just quickly here that have come up. Um, I think it will be interesting to see in the search warrants if they were looking for a taser and if there was a taser used on any of these victims Mm. to immobilize them. Um, I think that will be interesting to see if there's any evidence of that in the autopsy reports. I think, you know, you and I have talked about the fact that Brian had an interest in being an army ranger at one time. I think it will be interesting to see if he had night vision goggles, if he had a ghillie suit. And if people don't know what a ghillie suit is, that's like um, a camouflage uniform that the military wears um, when they're doing um, surveillance in wooded territory. And they actually not only have camouflage on, but they actually have like foliage attached to the outfit they're wearing so that they actually look like the landscape. I think it'd be interesting to see if he has a ghillie suit because I wonder if he would wear that while stalking these girls in that back wooded area behind their property. 
Well, as always, we're thinking of the families today and always and hoping that in the end there will be some justice. Um, just an, an unfathomable situation for all of those that loved this group of bright, young kids who are on the cusp of new life adventures. Always thinking of them. Thank you so much, as always, for your time. Where can people follow you? And you have a new Patreon that I want you to tell everybody about. Yes. Um, you and your listeners have been so supportive of me. So several people have suggested or asked me, hey, can you do a podcast covering some of these big cases? Um, you know, not just Idaho, but other big true crime cases. So I have started on patreon.com a podcast. It's called Caught in My Web. Murders, Mysteries, and Cases Capturing My Attention. And my first episode is up. Um, it's a deep dive on the Alex Murdaugh case. Um, Alex Murdaugh is a former attorney who was accused in South Carolina of killing his wife and son. And he's due to go on trial here on January 23rd. So I thought it was a timely episode I could put up. But yes, please follow me on patreon.com and check out my my podcast. You can also find me on my website, jodineweber.com. You can sign up for my newsletter on my website where I not only cover true crime, but give book recommendations on mysteries, thrillers, suspense, true crime. And you can also email me on my website. And that is the best way to ask me a question or make a suggestion for the podcast on a case you want me to, to highlight or follow. And then, of course, I'm on Twitter at Jodine Weber and Instagram at Weber Jodine. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app and answer a few questions. With Angie, you can book instantly at an upfront price or request and compare quotes from multiple pros so you can find the best price for your project. So the next time you have a home project, just Angie that and start getting the most out of your home. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome. I was so struck by Samantha's story and moved by the way your family has honored her by creating a foundation in her honor. So many people that are listening have kids. So many have nieces and nephews like I do who are in college or about to go to college. And I just thought the way that your family has really shifted the way people think about ride sharing is so moving. So first, I want to honor you and your family and to say, um, this is an extraordinary story and so important for everyone to hear. Samantha was a political science student from New Jersey, the great state of New Jersey, studied in Barcelona, fantastic student, countless friends, member of the Alpha Gamma Delta sorority, won a full scholarship to Drexel University, had hoped to dream, hoped and dreamed to work in international law, a girl after my own heart, weeks away from graduation. And on March 29th, she went out with friends and ordered an Uber. Would you like to share what happened? Samantha was home the night, the, the weekend before at Student Acceptance Day for Drexel. Um, she was actually scheduled to come back that weekend the following weekend, whenever that weekend everything happened, uh, to come home to go to student acceptance day to Rutgers University because she actually had a scholarship for both and she was debating upon which one to go to. Just so happened, Drexel was uh, the Klein School offered her full, Rutgers offered her about 60, 70%. So when she went back that Monday and <clears throat> that Thursday night, she went out. To uh, with a bunch of friends that are all celebrating about moving on. They haven't been together in a while, her roommates and her friends, because of Samantha coming up, different things uh, that were going on with everyone. So uh, she went out to uh, 
the bar with her friends. And she actually, as you mentioned, left early because she actually had to get up to go to work early the next morning. So that's why she was by herself leaving. Um, There's a big misconception that she was separated from her friends. And that's not true. She was being responsible and going home early. So she got into the car that um, was driving around looking for something or someone. Um, He was sitting off to the side. Uh, watched Samantha try to get into um, a different car, a previous car. And um, as soon as that car pulled off, he zipped around from the parking lot right on the left-hand side, pulled into the handicapped spot, and Samantha jumped in. And um, the next day, that day, later on in the afternoon, afternoon, late afternoon, she was found about 65 miles away. yeah, by turkey hunters. And he had enacted the child lock in the back. Seat, yeah, correct? so that's, you know, and that's very important. Um, so he had the, the, the child's locks engaged. He had the door locks engaged. So, and that's one of the reasons that, one of the, the many different reasons, but one of the reasons why we started the foundation to try to educate is to make sure that whatever you do, if it's one of the 25, 26 companies out there in North America, or if it's Uber or Lyft, is to do everything to confirm that it's your ride before you get into the car. Um, Because with Samantha, she got into the car and it was too late, obviously with the door locks engaged. Um, Where everything happened, it was only two miles from where she um, was picked up. Um, So it could happen very quickly. Um, so that's why we started the foundation of, of what's my name to ask the driver, what's my name before you get in the car? Because the driver does know. Um, and a lot of drivers, I shouldn't say a lot. Some drivers will push back on that because, oh, that's my only form of safety. Well, it's, it's not, but it also confirms that you're getting the right passenger. It also will actually increase the uh, the revenue for that particular driver, those drivers, as well as it will increase the revenue for Uber and Lyft and whatever other companies because they'll refund you that money if you send something in that your Uber never showed up if you got into the wrong car. Um, and we found that from past drivers that kids, especially kids, um, leaving the bar, would jump into any car, as Samantha did, and um, and the driver would go, oh, are you, are you Seymour? And the, the person would go, yeah, start driving. Oh, no, I don't want to go there. I want to go to a different location. So they would lose that revenue, the driver, mm-hmm. because they would cancel the ride. And um, so it's really what we were looking at was, yes, to eliminate the imposing, and confirmed to get into the car. But it also led into the bigger picture of the everyday driver, everyday passenger. Um, and um, we found that it would actually increase the revenues for both the, the driver and the, 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 the rideshare company. But it would also keep much more the, the passengers in a safer place. And if you look at the numbers that both Uber and Lyft have put out, Uber did the four-year period, Lyft did the three-year period. But when you combine them, the amount of sexual assaults were 13,963 and 49 deaths. Wow. So what we were trying to do is, and that does not count imposing because neither Lyft or Uber would ever take responsibility like my daughter. So how many more sexual assaults, how many more rapes are occurring uh, over year over year because of that, that's not even counted and reported. And then you've created Sammy's Law. Tell me about Sammy's Law. We created a couple of different versions of Sammy's Law. So when everything first happened, South Carolina did something with signage, um, New Jersey came to us and we did something. And New Jersey has the safest platform um, overall today. 
where they use a QR code and they have signage and they have different things, the placard that's supposed to be on the back of the car uh, on both sides, the driver and the passenger back window. On the federal side, which we keep completely separate from the foundation, but you can't mix politics and the uh, federal law. So Marcy and I, what we've done was work with our Congressman Chris Smith, a representative, and he's helped us get from the beginning, our main focus were, was all about technology. We look at Uber and Lyft, and we, we constantly say Uber and Lyft because they're the two largest publicly traded companies. But all the rideshare companies, all the TNCs, are, are, um, they're, they're, they're technology companies. They may be transactional Trans, uh, tra- uh, technology companies, but they are using technology to do the transaction. So our main focus was using technology to confirm the ride before you get into the car. So Uber would use a four-digit PIN. The car pulls up, you get a four-digit PIN, you give it to the driver before you get into the car. If it is your car, the uh, when the driver puts the pin in, your phone will actually vibrate mm. to confirm. If it's not yours, your phone will not vibrate. And if you didn't want to be as safe and don't want to take that responsibility, then you could opt out. But they're fighting us and have spent millions of dollars lobbying against us on that. The other part was uh, about making signs illegal. Because today you can go on Amazon. You can go on Walmart and purchase a Uber or Lyft sign, buy it, put it in your car, go out and act as a driver. Be you know, you're, obviously, if you're doing something like that, you're an nefarious driver. So, we wanted to make that illegal. So we wanted to have um, not the ability for uh, Walmart or Amazon sell those signs to anyone. We wanted to have from an authorized dealer from uh, Uber or Lyft or the other 24 uh, rideshare companies. Um, so the other part that actually did pass was a what they call a GAO study, Government Accountability mm-hmm. Office. Um, and that is a year-long process where the government feels that they need to do a study on the industry excuse me, good and bad, saying, yep, this is how bad all the industry is, not just with Uber and Lyft, but with the Altos and the Via and the Geos, all the companies that are out there, that there's these many incidents. We need to do something. My push, So that's what was just passed. That only part of the legislation was passed. The other two parts we had to take out because we had... The uh, a couple of senators and one particular congressman um, pushing back on it. So we actually had the head of the committee um, and those two senators happened to be holding it and would not meet with me. So we actually had to move quickly because of the time of the year and have the GAO study enacted. To me, it's a waste of money and time. Um, it's a waste for the constituents, bec- money, because Uber and Lyft are both self-reporting of how bad it is for them in a Uber in a four-year period and Lyft in a three-year period. That it's a shame that the senators and the congressmen that want to waste the money and create the study because those numbers aren't aren't enough. You know, of almost 14,000 sexual assaults and 49 deaths, which the 49 deaths does not, one of them does not even include my daughter. So to me, that's, it's upsetting. It is a start, but it's upsetting. Mm-hmm. So that's the Sammy's law. What do you think she would have thought about your advocacy? Because she wanted to study, she studied political science. She was going to pursue international law. What do you think she'd think about all of this? I think she would be embarrassed because we're using her name. 
she was, she didn't like bringing attention to herself. Like, I would say 90% of the people didn't even know that she even had a full scholarship to go to even to law school for either Rutgers or Drexel. She did not brag or boost about it. Um, her roommates found out that <laughs> that weekend that she had a scholarship. She finally told them. So I think on one hand, she would be maybe proud. But on the other hand, I think she would be, would look at maybe the, hopefully that we're saving a life, saving a sexual assault. You know, we get emails, we get messages that we are, but it's very difficult on our end. Um, But I think she would probably be really embarrassed. She liked to fly under the radar Mm -hmm. in that sense. She was a jokester. A lot of people didn't even realize that she was as smart as she was. Um, But she was always joking. She always had a smile, you know, one of those bubbly type kids. Um, You know, I, I don't know. It's just, that's a difficult question to answer because I know that like for me I would be like stop it just move on worry about yourselves and I think she was a lot like that yeah I wanted to take a moment to honor her mother and her sister and I think a lot of people get lost in some of these true crime stories in what happens to the victim but also we I should always say we should be mindful of the family that stands behind the victim And I was very glad that they participated in the story because it's nice to see their faces and to hear their stories too. Um, How are your daughter and your wife? My daughter is a tremendous uh, young lady. Um, She is resilient, tough um, young lady. She's a nurse in Philadelphia. At Children's Hospital. Wow. Um, she <clears throat> she's okay. Um, you know, doing these documentaries that we did on Hulu. And, um, Hulu is actually the last one that we'll be doing that we did, and we will be doing. I've been asked on Lifetime. Um, I asked, been asked on um, just last week about a Canadian company uh, to be put out there, um, stations. Um, It's very tough doing documentaries, and it's very tough on them Mm -hmm. to do the documentaries. Um, It takes probably a week to two weeks just to decompress, as well as does for me. Um, I'm just a little bit different (laughs) now. Well, you're ferocious. You're a you're a fight. You're a warrior for your daughter, so it makes sense. Tell us where we can find more information on the foundation. Sure. Yeah. So, um, with the foundation, um, we're actually in the midst of redoing our website, but it's still there. It's called What's My Name org, and we can also be followed on Facebook, Meta, um, as well as Instagram. Um, and the both are What's My Name underscore uh, or um, so we constantly have updates on that um, on the website you can actually we do mailings of probably about once a month from our website that people that register um, so everything's on the website and everything you know from signage PSAs that we've done um, there's probably about 11 12 PSAs um, that we have done, which are, I think, impactful. Mm-hmm. Because it's not me doing it. It's somebody like a Darius Rucker or Bob Saget um, doing it. Um, not me, where people are uh, much more famous. And we'll hopefully have a couple more in the next uh, two months that we're working on. Terrific. Well, I honor you and your family. And of course, Samantha today. Thank you for taking your time to talk with me. I want to thank my great guests, Seymour and Jody, and remind you to click subscribe and leave a five-star review. Join the Facebook group, Reality Life with Kate Casey, to talk about this episode and others. 
You can get my must-watch list by going to katecasey.substack.com. By signing up for that, you're going to get in your inbox every Monday a list of everything that I suggest each week in unscripted television. So reality shows, documentaries, and docu-series. You can also find me on social media. I'm on Twitter at at Kate Casey, and I tweet about shows and during shows all week long. My Instagram is at Kate Casey CA. My TikTok is it's Kate Casey. And you can also get bonus episodes, bonus episodes by going to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash Kate Casey for more episodes. Again, Facebook group is Reality Life with Kate Casey. Twitter at Kate Casey, Instagram at Kate Casey CA, and TikTok, it's Kate Casey. And lastly, the must watch list is available at katecasey.substack.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.